بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه Brothers and sisters in Islam, السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته And all those who are watching on Facebook Live today, السلام عليكم to all my brothers and sisters in Islam We left off last week in the story of the biography, the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam we left off at the death of Abraha. Remember, Abraha was the man, the king, who was in Yemen. He took over in Yemen, originally from Ethiopia, who tried to destroy the Kaaba with the elephant. That was the year in which Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Rasulullah, was born. After the death of Abraha, we're going back to Yemen. I just want to tell you what happened there, insha'Allah. And then we'll return back to the life in Mecca and the birth of the Prophet wasallam today. We're going to learn about the birth of the Prophet wasallam. Say wasallam every time you hear his name. Back in Yemen, there was a man who was from the Arabs of Yemen. You don't need to know his name. I can say a hundred names. You're not going to remember him. So he was just an Arab from among the Arabs of Yemen originally. Remember that the Ethiopians had taken over Yemen. And this man wanted to return the kingdom back to the Arabs, the original Arabs of Yemen. So he went to Caesar, the Roman, to help him fight the Ethiopians of Yemen. But remember, the Ethiopians are Christian. And Caesar refused to help him because he was a Christian as well. So he went to an Arab ally who lived in Iraq near Persia, modern-day Iran. And the king of Persia, we call him Kisra. In English, you can say uh, Cyrus. Or you can say uh, some other names, the Emperor of Persia. Anyway, the Persians were full of arrogance. And they were truly the superpower of the world that time. I'm going to tell you something amazing about them. He went to this Arab man and he sought help from the Persians through this Arab ally who lived in Iraq. When he entered, there was a curtain that covered the throne of the emperor, the king of Persia. Kisra, curtain. They had a curtain which covered the throne. People entered, they waited, and this is how they did it. When the curtain opened up, before their eyes, they saw the king of Persia sitting on his throne. And I'm going to describe how they used to sit on their throne. There was a crown, the Persians. Have you ever watched the movie 300? You ever watched the movie 300 a long time ago? It's not far off from what, the, what they've shown you about the Persians. They were pretty extreme and bizarre in the way they looked and the way they came in on their thrones. It's, it's not too much of an exaggeration in relation to the Persians, to be honest. They had a crown that was made of pure gold 
filled with pearls and jewels. It was so massive, huge. It weighed over 500 kilos. 500 kilograms. And it hung from the roof with a golden chain all the way down just where the head of the king was. It's because it's so big, you can't put it on your head, it's impossible. But it has to be some magnificent, crazy thing, right? And what happened was that the king would sit on his throne and put his head under the crown. So it looks like the crown's on his head, but it's really hanging above him. Massive crown. And then you open that curtain and there you see before your eyes that bizarre scene. The king of Persia with this massive crown above him that weighs 500 kilos or so. And everybody had to make sajda. They had to go down to the ground, bowing on the floor, put their head on the floor to him. This Arab man from Yemen, he didn't really bow. He just nodded his head. And the king of Persia became infuriated. He got up and says, Who is this person who thinks that he is better than me coming into my land and not bowing his head to me? And he said, oh, Shah and Shah, Shah and Shah, king of kings, that's what they used to call the Persians. He said, you know, my, my land has been taken over by the Ethiopians and my mind's been taken over. I, I just forgot to bow. I'm just taken over. And then the king said, oh, so you wanna, you're, you're a royalty, are you? He said, help me out, you know, send an army. And the Persian king said to him, you know, I've got no business in Yemen. He asked his uh, viziers and they said that, you know, there's nothing in Yemen. Why would we go and waste our soldiers on there? So he said, listen, just take 10,000 pieces of gold or whatever and, and as a gift from me because you, you came here in your royalty. The guy went out and he was very depressed so he started to throw the gold everywhere. This Arab man. It was a bit of a tactic and everybody came and took the gold and the king of Persia liked that. You know, he, he said, what? He throws the gold away? The, the, the gold of the king of Persia? This, this man must be something different. You know, why would he throw gold away? So he, tur he called him back and he said, what's the problem? How could you throw the gold that the king of Persia has given you? And he said, why would I want gold, Shah and Shah, when I've come from a land, its mountains and valleys are full of gold. He's lying, but it was a diplomacy, a tactic to make him, you know, greedy. He said, mountains full of gold? He asked his vizier, says, we didn't know of Yemen having that. I guess it's worth sending some troops there. So he got some of his prisoners, some were prisoners of war, some were whatever, they were in the prisons. And he said, I'll send these guys out with you. They're good fighters. And he sent upon them two of these commanders. So he sent them there to Yemen. They fought off the Ethiopians there. And they annihilated them immediately. Instead of giving Yemen back to the Arabs, the Persians themselves, what did they do? They took over Yemen themselves. And that's the story of how Yemen became ruled by the Persians. They worshipped the fire and idols. As the years went by, I'll tell you this really interesting story, you really like it. As the years went by, and the Prophet ﷺ was born, and then he was raised. I'll, I'll come back to the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, but I just want to finish this remarkable story about Yemen, ruled by the Persians, Zoroastrians, they worship the fire. The Prophet ﷺ was born, he grew up, and he became the messenger. You, you know the story when he received the Quran, he became the messenger. And then he migrated to Medina after the Hijrah, all the way then. I'm taking you fast forward a little bit now into the future. He went to Medina 
and he became the Prophet of Allah and he sent out the letters. Remember? He sent out the letters to the kings of the world, calling them, inviting them to Islam if they wish. Otherwise, there is peace between them, trying to create peace and prosperity, or inviting them to Islam to save them. <clears throat> and when the letter reached the king of Persia, that king, that same king who was infuriated, why people, that Arab didn't bow to him, he ripped up his letter, threw it on the ground, stepped on it and says, how could this man invite me to his religion? A man from the Bedouin Arabs, who Prophet wasn't a Bedouin, but that's what he called him, from behind cattle and, and feces and, and, and uh, you know, just uh, primitive people in the sand coming, telling the king of kings to go and embrace his religion and under his command. So he sent a letter to the king of Yemen, the one who was now in Yemen, right? He said to him, send someone to grab, to bring me this man Muhammad and bow before me later. So this king of Yemen who had taken over, the Persian had taken over Yemen, he sent one messenger, one man. You're not allowed to kill the messengers, right? But these guys, they sent off the messenger, one, with no troops, no soldiers, because they wanted to show them that we'll send you one man, he's tough enough, we're not afraid of any of you. Sent the messenger to Muhammad وسلم, and he says, I come from the king of Yemen, the Persian, from a letter from the king of Persia himself, the Shah and Shah, to tell you to give in, come with me, and surrender to the king, the emperor of Persia. Otherwise, we'll bring an army and annihilate all you Arabs once and for all. What did the Prophet do? He looked up at him in all calmness and said, You know, the problem is, your king has just died. He said, what, what are you talking about? Persia to modern day Saudi Arabia, to Mecca, to Medina. You need months, months of journey. That day, those days they didn't have aeroplanes or didn't have cars or ships that sail through the sea to get there because it's all desert. You need months to get there. From Yemen to Mecca and Medina, again, another three, four months. How could the news have reached him? He said, your king has died. He said, what are you talking about? The king hasn't died. It's impossible for you to know this. You're just making it up. He said, listen, go back to your king of Yemen. And if I'm not telling the truth, we will come and surrender. He said, how do you know this? And he looked at him and said, Al-Wahi. Al-Wahi. A messenger from the heavens comes to me. Jibreel, alayhi salam. And I am a messenger of Allah. This messenger says, is this what you want me to tell the king of, of Persia? He says, yes. You'll come to him surrendering? It's not true. He said, yes. So he went back to the king of Yemen and told him this is what this man Muhammad وسلم, is saying. He sent a letter to the king of Persia. He said, I'll get the information. I'm supposed to be the first one to find out. And after about two months of journey, they came back from Persia to Yemen. And they said to him, on this date, at this time, the king of Persia died. And he was the uncle of the king of Yemen. He looks at the letter and thought, my God, same time, same day, same date when the messenger was at Muhammad And the king of Yemen, who was the Persian, said, Wallahi, it is impossible for anyone to know this information 
he has to be a prophet of God. And he embraced Islam. And the entire Yemen Persians embraced Islam and all of Yemen became Muslim. And the Prophet ﷺ sent a letter and appointed him, said, confirmed his position to stay the ruler of Yemen. He died, his son took over, and Rasulullah confirmed his position and they stayed there. And that's how Yemen became another land that is preferred by the Prophet ﷺ until today. Yemen is considered one of the Muslim countries from the time of the Prophet ﷺ. So that's the story there. And now, brothers and sisters, we've had enough of international countries. We are now going to come down back to our hometown in Mecca and talk about the story of the birth of the Prophet ﷺ and take off from there. The great, great, great grandfather of the Prophet wasallam, great, 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 three greats, grandfather of the Prophet wasallam, his name was Qusay ibn Kilab. This man, Qusay ibn Kilab, was one of the offsprings the lineage from the lineage of Prophet Ismail alayhi salam. Ismail alayhi salam, the one that was put to slaughter in the miraculous story. This man, Qusay ibn Kilab, he is the one who took back Mecca into the rule and governing of Quraysh. Quraysh later on was named Quraysh after one of his siblings, after one of his offsprings. He fought off the people of Khuza'ah. Remember Khuza'ah, the ones who took it over hundreds of years back from Ismail's people, the, the, from the original Arabs. He took it from them and put it back into the hands of the original Arabs that came from Ismail and Bani Jurhum, which later on became Quraysh. There's a long story to how Qusay ibn Kilab took it over from Khuza'a, but in summary, they had a war, they had a battle, they had a big fight, and the, they looked at each other and thought, it's cousins killing cousins, relatives killing relatives, because they all came from you know, great-grandfathers or brothers. So they stopped the war and thought, let's ask the sorcerers and the fortune tellers, what they think. Remember? The fortune tellers had a big name after that. And they said to them, listen. No, not the fortune tellers, sorry. They said, let's ask the scribes whom they used to respect in the land. And they said, we will ask them and whatever they say, we agree on a judge. And whatever they say, we will all agree to it. And so the ruling came from the judges, those scribes, those scholars of theirs. They said, the original people were Bani Jurhum. Qusay comes from their lineage. Everything of Mecca, its waters, its key to the Kaaba, its houses, its earth, its soil, the Kiswa that's over the Kaaba, everything goes back to Qusay ibn Kilab's people, to Quraysh. And so, my brothers and sisters, 
the lineage of the Prophet ﷺ, Quraysh, they are the ones who now are the custodians of the Kaaba and everything surrounding it, the Haram and the whole of Mecca. Among the things which they took was something called Darun Nadwa. Darun Nadwa, Qusay ibn Kilab, he made this special hall, this special place where they used to gather, they used to have their weddings, they used to have their council there, they used to have functions, they used to bring the leaders and they used to talk stuff and decide things, governing things. He made that, the great-great-grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ. And Darul Nadwa was the second most important landmark of the Arabs that brought them sharaf, honor, honor. The first was the Kaaba and the second was Darul Nadwa, the house of council. It's like the parliament house of the Arabs. So it became their honor. This Darul Nadwa became such an honor that one of the children of Qusay, he was in charge of it, he was given it. And later on, one of his other children, he was a drunk, he was drinking a lot, he was an alcoholic. Another man came along and he bought Darul Nadwa off him. He bought it and he said, how much do you want for it? And the drunk guy was drunk, he said, I'll buy it off you for a bottle of wine. So he sold him Darul Nadwa for a bottle of wine, they signed contracts, the guy was drunk. But he signed the contracts, there was no other way of returning. And so Darul Nadwa, it stayed with this man and his name was Hakim ibn Huzam, if you want to know his name. He had Darul Nadwa all the way after the death of the Prophet was still in his family's name. He lived on, this man. After the Khulafa, all the way down to the Khalifa by the name of Muawiyah ibn Abu Sufyan radiallahu anhu. And on that day he sold Darul Nadwa to some other guy for a hundred thousand dinars, Darul Nadwa. And Muawiyah, he got upset about that. He comes up to Hakim and he says to him, What? You sold the pride and honor of the Arabs, Darul Nadwa, for only a hundred thousand dinars? And Hakim, he had embraced Islam and was a pious man. He said to Muawiyah, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, that was the way the Arabs saw their honor. That's gone now. Our honor is in taqwa Allah. Wallahi, I bought it for a bottle of wine. And I sold it for a hundred thousand dinars and I make you witness this is fi sabilillah. And he gave it all fi sabilillah. And this shows us, my brothers and sisters in Islam, that the Prophet wasallam took us away. Took us away from tribalism, bloodlines, favoritism of Arabs above other Arabs, Arabs above non-Arabs, and non-Arabs above Arabs, anybody. No matter what, where you're coming from, it, your privilege and your honor is only in your taqwa. Only in your taqwa. Inna akramakum, Allah says, Inna akramakum indallahi atqakum. The most honored among you in the sight of Allah are the ones who are most God-fearing. That's your merit. Not your clothing. Not your designer brands that you wear or have. Not your car. Not your wealth. Not your looks. Not your bloodline. None of that is your sharaf and honor except your taqwa of Allah. For wallahi, a man passed by the Prophet ﷺ and his companions were sitting there one day. He had dirt, all over, he had like dust, he was dusty. His clothes weren't the best and he was hurrying from place to place working really hard. In other words, he didn't have much wealth. He was working for it really hard. And some of the men, they looked at him in a sort of like, in a way where they kind of gave him a look that is not very important. And the Prophet ﷺ noticed it and said to them, 
والله قال الله رب هذا الأشعث أغبر لو أقسم على الله لأبره Beware for Allah this man who you see dusty and he looks like he is you know struggling to work hard for his own wealth and he's not important you think والله he could be that that man if he were to ask Allah for anything against any of you or anybody Allah would surely give him exactly what he wants meaning he could be a favorite one to Allah and a wali of Allah a person who is favored by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so my brothers and sisters don't ever look down upon anyone just because of the way they look or whatever at all and never judge people in that way there's a big story about Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal the great scholar as well he was like that inshallah one day we'll talk about him talk about his humbleness and how fame and fortune was nothing to him and like the rest of the scholars who are the inheritors of the prophets the scholars are what are they the inheritors of the prophets and if you were to go and look for the prophet sallallahu where will you find him where will you find him what did we say in the last classes? If you went back in time, 1400 years ago, you're looking for the Prophet ﷺ, where would you look? Huh? No, you won't look at Dar al Arqam. No, no, you're looking for the Prophet ﷺ. First places you would look in public, you don't know where Dar al Arqam is, you don't know where Mecca is, you don't know where exactly everything is. You, you look at where people are gathered, look at circles of people where they're sitting. You look for the poor people. You look for people who look poor. They look ragged, they look poor, they're left alone. That's where you'll find the Prophet You'll find him sitting among them, among the poor people. He used to say, I used to love sitting among the poor people. And he used to say, Oh Allah, Allahumma hshurni ma'al fuqara. Oh Allah, on the day of judgment, gather me with the poor ones. There's something about them, subhanAllah. Obviously, the poor mu'mineen. My brothers and sisters in Islam, let's move on. Qusay ibn Kilab had a son by the name of Abdu Manaf and another son Abdu Dar and a few other sons. Abdu Manaf is the important one and Abdu Dar is second in line. Abdu Manaf, he is the great grandfather of the Prophet And from Abdu Manaf came the uh, so Abdul Manaf was the great great grandfather. From Abdul Manaf came Hashim. Hashim is the great grandfather. I'm sorry. So let's repeat it again. Abdul Manaf is the great great grandfather of the Prophet وسلم, followed by the great father of the Prophet's grandfather, who is Abdul, who is Hashim. And then after Hashim came Abdul Muttalib, who is who is Abdul Muttalib? The grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ. Now, Abdul Manaf, this great-grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ, he had a few sons. Two of them, Hashim, and, one of, and the other one, Al-Muttalib. Al-Muttalib. Not Abdul Muttalib, Al-Muttalib. Al-Muttalib and Hashim were brothers. Hashim's wife, was her name was Hala Ummu Shayba. That means Hashim had a son named Shayba. Hashim died, and his brother Al Muttalib 
he went to take his nephew, Shaiba, to look after him. But his mother, Hala, she refused. She says, this is my son. He said, let me look after him. You're not going to be able to and all that stuff. Shaiba grew up a little bit here. He was old enough to choose. In the Arab's time, if you're over seven years old, the boy gets to choose. So he said, mother, let me go with my uncle, Al-Muttalib. And so Al-Muttalib took him and he left. He went and carried Shaiba on his camel. When he entered Mecca, the people looked at him and they thought that he was his slave, his abd. So they called him the abd of Al-Muttalib. But by the time they found out he was his nephew, the name had already stuck to him and therefore he was nicknamed Abdul Muttalib, the slave of Al-Muttalib. But his real name is Shaiba. The Prophet's grandfather, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, is, is Shaiba. But he was nicknamed Abdul Muttalib because the people originally thought he was Al-Muttalib's Abd, his slave. So they called him the slave of Al-Muttalib, Abdul Muttalib. That's not his real name, it's his nickname. And he stuck with him for the rest of his life. Subhanallah, even the Prophet ﷺ loved the word Abdullah because we are the slaves of Allah. <clears throat> Abdul Muttalib. My brothers and sisters in Islam, this man Abdul Muttalib. <clears throat> okay, I've got to cut again. Brothers and sisters, I'm getting annoyed of this really. There's a carp number plate. It was a mistake, khayr, inshallah. V-A-P-G has blocked the driveway. Can you please move your car? Jazakallahu khayran. Brothers and sisters in Islam, let's move on. Abdul Muttalib is the Prophet's grandfather. He had one son named Al-Harith. Abdul Muttalib had one son named Al-Harith. He was the oldest. And Abdul Muttalib, he really wanted more sons. The Arabs used to take pride in having lots of sons. And he used to say, Oh Allah, give me more sons, give me more sons. And he only had Al-Harith. And one day, Abdul Muttalib, he lived, he lived to a hundred years approximately. He saw a dream. In that dream for four nights, first night, he saw someone coming to him saying, Uhfur Tiba, dig Tiba. And he said, What is Tiba? And then he woke up. The second night, he saw the same man coming to him in his dreams. He said to him, Uhfur Barra. He said, What is Barra? Dig Barra, what's Barra? Didn't answer him. Third night, the man came to him and said, Dig Al Madnuna. He said, what's Al-Madnuna? No answer. That, he had, they had no idea. On the fourth night, the man in his dream said to him, Dig Zamzam. He said, Wama Zamzam. What's Zamzam? Nobody knew what Zamzam is. It had been covered for, what, nearly, at least 500, what? Uh, no, not 500 years. It had been buried since Ismail, alayhi salam. Close to his time, really a bit after. Maybe... Uh, what, uh, 2,000 years? Maybe even 3,000? So, when he said, what is Zamzam? The following words were said to him in his dreams. I'll say them in Arabic. Uhfur Zamzam. 
لا تنزف أبدا ولا ترق تسقي الحجيج الأعظم وهي بين الرفث والدم عند نقرة الغراب الأعصم عند قرية النمل It's a bizarre, bizarre words. He said, dig zamzam. Oh, it has never dried out and never will, nor will it ever thin out. It stays consistent. It can, fit, it can, give, it can give enough water for the largest amount of hujjaj that go to hajj. And you will find it between the animal's intestines and the blood between blood and animals intestines exactly where the white winged crow will peck in the ground near the colony of ants so he got up took a shovel took his son al-harith and went around the Kaaba. He's sitting there thinking, how am I going to find this? Intestines, blood, <laughs> colony of ants, white winged crow pecking. As he was waiting there, he saw a group of people that were slaughtering a cow. They slaughtered the cow, the blood came out and spilled. And then, after it spilled, the cow got up Still, it was a bit alive. It was just a reaction. And it walked a distance out of shock. And then it fell at a distance. The Arabs went to it and started to cut the cow up. The intestines fell out, as you would do. He said, ah, this is the first sign. There's the blood and there's the intestines. But where do I dig? There was probably about 20 meters between them. As he was waiting, he saw... A white winged crow come down and peck in the ground. He went towards it and saw the colony of ants. Saw the colony of ants and in the middle the, white, the, the crow was pecking. He said, there it is. He started to dig. Now the Arabs saw him do that. And by the way, that was between the two gods, Isaf and Na'ilah. Remember them? The ones who did the deed in front of the Kaaba. It was between them. And they think, this is a sanctuary, this is a, you know, a sacred area, why are you digging there? They came to try and fight him off. And Abdul Muttalib said to his son, Harith, fight him off son, don't let him come near me. He started fighting him off, he's digging away. It shows you the determines. It's, it's in the bloodline of the Prophet Keep him away. He's fighting him off and they're wrestling each other and Abdul Muttalib is looking, still digging away. It's a funny, funny sight. He's digging away, they're trying to fight him off. Oh, what are you doing? And finally he saw, subhanAllah, he saw the bricks, the circular bricks that the Arabs had built, like the ones you see in a well. Very deep. He said, Allah! What did he say? He said, He said something. That Allah is the greatest or something like that. Suddenly, the Arabs stopped. They saw the water gushing out. They said, let's go partners with you. you know, we're together here, go partners. He said, no, this has been given to me by God, Allah. 
They still believed in Allah. Remember, they worshipped the idols not because they believed they were the gods, but because they brought them. It was a channel between them and God, remember? And that's what makes them gods. They still believed in a real God. They still believed in Ibrahim Aysan's religion, but, and they knew, they knew that they were doing the wrong thing. Deep inside, they knew that worshiping these idols was rubbish. But it became a social thing, a political thing. And you know, when, you know, when everybody, this is when you get stuck with the social community and, and we start getting stuck into the peer pressure and everybody just follows anyway. Allah says, Don't follow blindly that which you do not know. But that's how people are these days. Say, so, oh, everybody does it. Everybody jumps, we should jump. Everybody um, cuts their hair this way or that, we should cut our hair this way. Everybody dresses like this, we should all dress like that. Oh, the hijab styles have now changed. Everybody does it, I might as well do it. You know, we look on Facebook and we see new styles of Muslim looks and every, that people tattoo Allah's name on their body. They go, that's cool, let's, every, let's do it because a lot of people do it. They just, and inside of you, you know something's wrong with it. So you know inside of you something's wrong. That's why they come and ask, is it halal? Like, why are you asking if you had doubt? You ended up doing it anyway. SubhanAllah, we do things, then we ask, is it halal or haram? And then we try to justify our actions if we get embarrassed. My brothers and sisters in Islam, that's how they were. He refused. So they said, we'll fight over it. He said, hold on, I'll fight you. And then one man came up and said, what's this man Arabs fighting Arabs? Let's go to a fortune teller so-and-so. This particular fortune teller lived in Khaybar. Months away journey. They said, let's go to her. Whatever she says, we'll do. So on their way, in the middle of the desert, they ran out of water. The other tribe had water. Abdul Muttalib and his small family or clan, they didn't have, they ran out of water. And you know, in the deserts over there, if you run out of water, that's it, you're going to die. So they sat down and said, let's dig our graves and get ready for death. As they were sitting there, Abdul Muttalib gets up and says, what's this man? This, we don't give up. I'm going to keep searching. As he's walking around where his camel was sitting, subhanAllah, he saw a little bit of water coming out of the ground. So he dug. And the water came out. The other Arabs looked and said, not again, man. <laughs> again? They came up to him and said, Ya Abdul Muttalib, you truly have been favored by Allah. We're convinced now. Zamzam is yours. Let's go back. And so Zamzam became to the lineage or the, the ancestors of the Prophet ﷺ. That was the greatest honor. The greatest honor for all the Arabs. Remember what we said, the Arabs, how did they value each other? With their honor. Not with wealth and all that, honor. And he, Abdul Muttab, had the greatest honor. Later on became the chief of, of Quraysh. And he was in charge of Zamzam and feeding the Hujjaj. That was the greatest honor. Arabs' greatest honor is hospitality. They will fight <laughs> and kill each other over hospitality. Not because of hospitality, but because that's what they believed was their honor. My honor, my sharaf. I will die and kill for it and everybody will know I am the son of who? Doesn't mean anything. But that's how we are. I am the daughter of who? <laughs> I'm talking like that. Which explains to us today why some Arabs of the world, instead of fighting in the name of Islam, the name of justice and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we say, in the name of my ancestors and my fathers. And so what happens is that only that group, little group of Arabs fight. They don't get many supporters because you kind of thought you're the best and everybody else is really ours. It's your fight. It's your nationality. That's it. 
But when we make it like we're all brothers and sisters as a family, everybody comes in, they support each other, they help each other when we're down and oppressed. Anyway, anyway. Abdul Muttalib therefore is in charge of Zamzam. And remember he said, Ya Allah, give me children. And if you give me children, he called out to Allah, if you give me children, I will sacrifice, if you give me ten boys, I will sacrifice one of them for you. I'll kill him. He made an oath. And so, Allah did give him. He gave him ten sons. Their names were Al-Abbas and Hamza. They were from a different, they were from a step-grandmother. Step-grandmother. They were half-brothers, uh, half-uncles of the Prophet ﷺ. Hamza and Al-Abbas. And they were the only ones of his uncles who converted to Islam. As for the others were Abu Talib, Abu Lahab, who was also called Abdul Uzza, and Abu Lahab was also a half-uncle. There was Az-Zubayr. There was also Abdullah, who is the father of the Prophet There was also Hijr, Dirar, Al-Muqaddam, and Al-Harith. As for his aunties, he had Safiya, radiallahu anha. We all know about Safiya, radiallahu anha, she embraced Islam. He also had Ummu Hakim, Atika, Atika, maybe she was a Muslim, Umayma, Arwa, and Barra. Those were his aunties. Six daughters, ten sons. Ten uncles, six aunties. Al-Abbas and Hamza, half-uncles. And later on, Hamza Radilano becomes the brother of Muhammad وسلم, from suckling, from breastfeeding. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Now, he has ten sons. Abdul Muttarib looks and says, I have to fulfill my oath. He didn't forget. <laughs> Twenty years later, he's going to still fulfill his oath. I've got to sacrifice my son. He's a man of his word. So he goes in front of one of the idols, Isaf. Isaf, you know, the hunk idol. The idol that committed zina, the hunk. You're not laughing. Laugh. It's a joke. You know, the guy who picked up the lady and did zina in front of the car. Just bring... Okay, we'll forget that happened. <laughs> so we'll go off. And he brought his son to slaughter him. He's... He brought one of his sons in. So then the people came and said, what are you doing? Don't kill him. He says, no, I'm going to kill him. He said, Yami, don't kill him. Wallah, if you do, it will become a, a tradition among the Arabs. We all have to do it after you. Stop, 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 stop. And he said to his son, Harith, keep him away from me. <laughs> brought his son. Who did he bring? He brought Abdullah. Now I'll tell you how he found out it was Abdullah. You see, a fortune teller told him, you've got to throw an arrow. Like which son? They, would, they had this arrow thing. They had to spin around and whichever, whoever it lands on, that's the person. And the arrow landed on Abdullah each time. Ten times it landed on Abdullah. And Abdul Muttalib was saying, I wish Ya Rab, it doesn't land on Abdullah. Anyone but Abdullah. Anyone but Abdullah. I think it was the second youngest. Because he loved him the most. Each time it landed on Abdullah. 
So he brought Abdullah and was about to slaughter him. People started to stop him. And he started to elbow them and kick them away. And he wants to, he goes, I have to fulfill the oath. I'm a man of my word. It's my oath. This is my honor. He said, stop, you army, stop. So then some Arabs came and snatched Abdullah off him. And Abdul Muttalib grabbed him and the knife was in his hand. And he cut his head, cut a little bit of his head. He made a scar and Abdullah was called Abdullah al-Ashaj. Which means Abdullah with the scar on his head. That was his nickname, Abdullah al-Ashaj. Grabbed his son, put the knife back on him. They started to fight him up. Then one leader got up and said, Ya Abdul, Ya Abdul Muttalib. Please, for the sake of Allah, let's find a solution. We'll go to a fortune teller and ask her about your situation. She says, you do it, we'll help you. So they went to another fortune teller and she said, if one of you killed another person by accident, what would the blood money be? They said, we give them 10 camels. She said, okay, get the arrow and put 10 camels and Abdullah on the other side. Throw the arrow. Every time the arrow lands on Abdullah, add another 10 camels. Until the arrow goes to the camels. And he did that. Put Abdullah in 10 camels, the arrow landed on Abdullah first time. He added 20 camels. The arrow landed on Abdullah's third time. Added another 30 camels. 40 camels. 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100. 100 camels. Finally, the arrow landed on Abdullah. And he slaughtered all these camels in the name of Allah and fed the people with them. And so Abdullah, the father of the Prophet wasallam, he became the one, the second father of the Prophet to be put to slaughter. There is a hadith, I'm not sure, scholars say it's weak, but the meaning is correct. He said, Anabnu Dhabihain. I am the son of the two who were put to slaughter for the sake of Allah. Ismail and his father, Abdullah. Brothers and sisters, all of this is really a sign for those Quraysh Arabs to see when the Prophet ﷺ is born, they can tell deep inside that he is a special person. They all knew he is a special person. And so Abdullah married Amina. Bintu Wahab. Amina bintu Wahab is also from Qusay ibn Kilab. And she is related to the Prophet ﷺ, his mother, from Hashim. Banu Hashim. She was a Hashimite. And his father was a Hashimite. Everybody respected the Hashimite. They were the most noble. And so the Prophet ﷺ was born from two noble families. Abdullah's side and his mother's side all meeting from Banu Hashim, from Qusay ibn Kilab, the leader, the original leader of Quraysh. Amina bint Wahab, from her mother's side, they lived in Medina, in Yathrib. So Abdullah, Abdul Muttalib took his son Abdullah to Yathrib, and he married Amina bint Wahab there. Uh, Abdullah, uh, Abdullah, the father of Muhammad sallallahu it was said that he was born in the year 545, and he lived for only, he was only, uh, he lived for about uh, 40 years. He was 25 years old when he married Amina. Amina radiallahu anha was slightly older than him. And she lived up to 47 years of age. 
They married each other and they returned to Mecca. Six months, uh, a few months later, she became pregnant with the Prophet And at about six months pregnancy, Abdullah, his father, was going on a trade to Asham in modern day Syria and the likes. On his way back, his father died. Abdullah, the father of the Prophet died. So the Prophet became an orphan before he was born. He was orphaned before he was born. And that is why you'll see in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, he had a strong affection, among the highest affection, for the orphans. And he died before his death in a few years, constantly reminding the people about the orphans. And Allah sent out verses of the Qur'an in respect to the orphans. The Prophet ﷺ himself was an orphan, and it takes an orphan to understand the plight of orphans. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was born. However, before his birth, it is said that Amina bint Wahab, when she was pregnant, she saw a dream. She saw a dream that a light was coming out of her belly. And it went all across Mecca, across the Arabian Peninsula, all the way to Busra in Iraq, past the Sham, all the way to Iraq. And she saw someone in her dream saying, Say, I seek refuge in Allah the only from the harm of anyone who is jealous. I seek refuge in Allah for my son from every jealous, envious person. And so she woke up and there was a woman named Barakah. How much time do we have for that? Maghrib? 12? I'll tell you a little bit about Barakah. It's really nice. This woman, Barakah. Hands up if you've heard of Barakah. Anyone? Ummu Ayman? Ummu Ayman? A few hands. Barakah? What about Ummu Ayman? It's the same person. Barakah and Ummu Ayman, is it? She was later on named Ummu Ayman. Anyway. This woman, Barakah, I have to tell you some things about her. At that time, at that time when, when Amina was pregnant, Barakah was a teenager, maybe 14 years old to 16. She was an Ethiopian woman. Her lineage is unknown. We don't know who her fathers are. She was a child of war, and the enemies took her and sold her in the market as a slave. Abdullah, the father of Muhammad, وسلم, he bought her as a slave. So she was a slave of Abdullah. Some say she was a slave of Amina and she gave her to Abdullah. Abdullah had her as a slave and he treated her like his own daughter. So she loved the family of the Prophet ﷺ and really treated them as if she was their daughter. She had this thing. She was a very positive person, a good counselor. She couldn't read or write. She didn't know Arabic that well. But they had the brain of a compassionate, empathy, empathetic, empathetical person who she was an empath. So she always felt for other people and was able to give the proper counseling to make you calm down and feel good about yourself. When Amina had this dream, the first person she went to was Barakah because she was very trustworthy. She confined in her. 
And she said to her, Ya Baraka, this is what I saw in my dreams. And Baraka said to her, Wallahi ya Amina, Wallahi, he is not an ordinary son. Allah is going to give you something special. He has blessed this child. And Amina said, Wallahi, he has. In my dreams I saw this and I saw that. Baraka said, I'll never leave you. She looked after her and the day came when the birth of the Prophet ﷺ became a reality. It is said, I want you to listen carefully to this, we only have a few minutes. It is said that the Prophet ﷺ was born on the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal in the year of the elephant. About 50 days after the elephant episode. 50 days after it. Rabi'ul Awwal, there's no difference of opinion about it. He was born on a Monday, no difference about it. However, the day, we don't know. Some say it was the 2nd, some say the 9th, some say the 16th, some say the 23rd, and some say the 12th, the majority say 12th, but mark my words, nobody knows when the Prophet ﷺ was specifically born. And anyone who tells you that doesn't know. There is no evidence, no source at all. Not from the greatest scholars to the modern scholars of the past or present. Nobody can pinpoint the exact day. And this shows us that neither the companions, nor the tabi'in, nor the people who came after him, were really concerned about the specific date of birth of the Prophet ﷺ or anyone for that matter. They didn't have this celebration of birthdays and things like that. If it was so important, we would know the exact date of the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. But there's nothing wrong with reminding about the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ and his greatness around that time in Rabi' al-Awwal. Nothing wrong with that. My brothers and sisters in Islam, I'm going to have to tell you some stories and then disappoint me. Number one, it is said that Hassan ibn Thabit, the poet of the Prophet he said, I was seven years old, I was in Medina, and I heard one of the Jewish scribes stand up on the tower and say, Ya ma'ashara Yahud, O people of the Jews, the star of the sign of the Prophet has just come up in the sky, it's just, sh just shown up, the Prophet is born. My brothers and sisters in Islam, the appearance of this star is not supported by authentic sources. It's da'if, weak hadith. Maybe true, maybe not. The other story, it says that Amina did not feel any pain of pregnancy. That is also something that has no authentic source. It says that he was born circumcised already. That is a hadith which is, I looked it up, the most they say it's weak, majority say it's even mawdu'ah. It's just fabricated. Rasulullah was not born circumcised. He's a human being, and that piece of skin that protects you in the fluid when you're in your mother's womb, and he is also one of those children who were born of a physical human body, but with some specialties. It says that he was born with his umbilical cord already cut. Again, another fabricated hadith. There are authentic hadith that later on, Baraka or someone else cut the umbilical cord. It is said that he was born with his arms on the floor. He was supporting himself on, the, on his hands and his 
his head was looking up into the, into the heavens. That is also, my dear brothers and sisters, a hadith which is in Bayhaqi and by Sunan Ahmad, but the great scholars of hadith say that it is daif, it's weak. We're not really sure about that. But nevertheless, my brothers and sisters, this is not what makes the Prophet ﷺ great. What makes him great ﷺ is what happens next in his life, his mission, the Qur'an, his seerah, his character. Allah says, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَى خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ And obviously there are other miracles that happened in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, but I had to disappoint you a bit to say this. There is one more disappointment, and that is there is uh, this famous narrations that when the Prophet ﷺ was born, the palace, the pillars on the palace of Kisra, the emperor of Persia, shook. Fourteen pillars, they say. They shook and almost fell. And he asked the fortune tellers, what's this? And they said, it's the birth of the new prophet that the Jews have been talking about. And then, so this is also another weak or fabricated narration. However, Kisra, he said to the fortune tellers, what's the matter with this prophet? And they said, this prophet is going to take over your kingdom. His people are going to take over your kingdom. It's going to be Islamic. And he said, when? They told him, after 14 kings have passed. And he thought, 14 kings, that's easy, man. And that's hundreds of years away. And subhanAllah, it is stated here in the history books, authentically, that within the next four years, 10 kings died, killed each other, and ten kings took over the Persian kingdom, subhanAllah. My brothers and sisters in Islam, Barakah, the woman, I'll finish it off with this, was the first human being to touch the Prophet She was the, witness, the uh, wife, the midwife, uh, she was going with Amina on a travel and then Amina got weak and she sat in the middle of nowhere and Barakah helped deliver the baby. As I said, she was about 16 years old or so, or 14, and she helped deliver the baby. She is the one that grabbed the Prophet ﷺ. She is the one who covered him and she is the one who gave him to his mother Amina when she gave birth. Baraka radiallahu anha. Baraka is one of the women of promised paradise. And insha'Allah, in our next class next week, we will talk about Baraka a little bit more because there's a bit of a story to her. We're still going to see what happened in the childhood of the Prophet, how he was, went to the wet nurse, Halimatul Sa'diyah in Medina, and all the miraculous things that happened to him in Medina. Also, the death of his mother, Amin bin Wahab, and the story of Barakah at that time. The reaction of the Prophet ﷺ is quite emotional actually. And then inshallah we'll talk about the, birth, the childhood and upbringing of Rasulullah ﷺ until he um, became a Prophet of Allah. That's next week. Jazakumullah khair for listening. هذا وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته
recording.